Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, Mile Marker 107. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And this is quite possibly the smelliest podcast we have ever done. But only possibly. Uh, it's hot as shit. It's like 85 degrees for the second day in a row, and it's been close to that for quite some time. Mid-October, North Carolina. Might I suggest you don't hold on to it for so long, you might cool it down. Mm-hmm. The shit, rather. And uh, it's just, um, it's just been dry. Uh, in other words, no rain to fill up the creeks that we normally bathe in. We're not still talking about shit, are we? Uh-uh. All right. And um, so, yeah, we're in the middle of a field underneath our front porch, which is a tarp um, that Gumby has constructed off of the van to give us some shade. And we're just trying to make this work for another day, and hopefully it'll rain tomorrow and cool things off. And we have a uh, YouTube video on this front porch, if you're not sure what that looks like. It's pretty neat, and it's actually, uh, the video is at the pretty much exact location that we are currently when we did the video. Same yard and everything. And there's been some woodpecker activity (laughs) happening lately, so if you hear that in the background. Um, Yeah, we're at our uh, Bahama Resort. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just found out that uh, Gumby's mom is uh, not in the hospital, which is rare these days. Mm-hmm. She came out and visited in the heat wearing, um, what, a sweatshirt and flannel, flannel bottoms. Yep, hobbling around on her little wheeled, uh, what, walker, yeah. roller? Yeah, and um, so she visited with us for a while. We, um, I think, rather intelligently took her back in so she wouldn't overheat. I don't think she's cold. I don't think she's hot, but I just can't imagine how that would be helpful for her to be out here so long. Um, and yeah, this is uh, this is our mile marker for the week, Gumby. So what else is new? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that actually happened before we recorded the last one, and I forgot to talk about, but was a pretty monumental thing for me, was uh, we attend this really really free market here in Durham. It happens once a month. Um, and I gave up my guitar. So I got this little travel guitar, um, and X gave it to me. It all started with, uh, she was like listening to her music one time when she was driving us around in her car. And I said something critical of her music about how I hated that kind of music. And it really offended her. Um, you know, her music was an expression of herself. I didn't realize like what that meant to her. And so I think she had a birthday or if it was Christmas or something like that coming up. So to kind of make up for it, I remembered that. And um, I bought her like a big guitar 
um, acoustic guitar with these two books. Um, if you've ever like played guitar or learned guitar, you might be familiar with the Rise Up Singing and more Rise Up Singing books that are great. You can learn how to play guitar without reading music. Um, so I got her that. I have no idea if she ever like took off with it or whatever. But the idea was that, you know, um, to make up for my careless statement, here's hopefully the tools so you can make your own music. <laughs> that was pretty good. And I think that kind of got her thinking about guitar and everything, which I was trying to learn. So when it came back around, I, I had been talking to her a lot about taking off and like doing this walkabout for like most of a year. And uh, she got, bought me this little travel guitar that I could um, theoretically put on my backpack and take with me. Um, so I've had that guitar ever since. It's one of those precious few things that I've held on to through a lot of moves, a lot of purges. Um, but yeah, we, uh, when we did the Anything Goes episode, a couple episodes back, Anything Goes Woke Edition, um, there's this song when we did, uh, our presidents, there was President Harding and, uh, there's a shots that we shared called the Ohio gang. If you want to hear that episode about president Harding, which is really entertaining and fascinating, <laughs> but he had this fixer kind of like a Jeff Epstein kind of guy that would hook them up with women and drugs or whatever for the Ohio gang named Jess Smith. And it was said that he would whistle the song, um, my God, how the money rolls in. Mm -hmm. And we got curious about that. And Teresa looked it up and it goes, uh, to the tune of, uh, my Bonnie. My Bonnie lies under the over the ocean. Uh -huh. Yeah, that tune. Bring and, back uh, my Bonnie to me. And it's so <laughs> fucking raunchy and raw and just like shocking um, that we were gonna try to do that song. And I was trying to like like I got my guitar out of the storage bin on top of the van that I hadn't played in like a year, and it I just could not get it in tune. Uh, it might be like warped or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's been through hell. And, all the uh, heat and all the like movement the jostling around i think has uh made the the neck of the guitar kind of unglued or something yeah i think so something like that and so i just figured i'd pass it on it, it has become you know like uh if it's not a useful thing we're carrying if it's something that's just like oh maybe useful one day i probably don't need to carry it i probably just need to learn how to do without or improvise and so i moved it on i've still got my little harmonica but it was a. Uh, tough it got scooped up immediately like as soon as i put it down i turned around and bam it's gone we didn't have a chance to put out the tuners that go with it yeah <laughs> i just pew. but that was a, that was a hard thing some things are easy to let go of some things even though i'm glad i let go of them it feels appropriate it was hard it was like parting with an old friend like man you and me guitar we got a lot of history together yeah. i hope you get a good home i hope somebody can take care of you and repair you in a way i couldn't Boy, isn't that like you're talking to a like a person you part ways with? Yeah. <laughs> I hope somebody I repairs same, you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> way I couldn't. Like, you're fucking broke. <laughs> I hope they can fix you because I couldn't. And listening back to our old podcast, you used to serenade us. Um, that guitar is actually the one that you played for the, the theme song, too. But also, you used to do little... At the end of the episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that guitar. Like, uh, if you've been listening to our episodes, you're familiar with the uh, voice of that guitar. So, mm. goodbye, old friend. Um, but that's something that happened to me. And uh, I guess the next thing that I was like, I thought was really <laughs> memorable, and you can definitely help me out with this story, is last Saturday. Also known as... One of the worst days in van life for us. Yeah, it was remarkable. Um, old, dirty old Durham. It ain't what it used to be. I mean, it's always been kind of had a reputation for crime, you know, dirty Durham. Even in North Carolina, people are like, ooh, you live in Durham? Like, ooh. 
Why do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody wants to move to Raleigh. That's mm. supposed to be the great place to live. I've always kind of hated Raleigh. It's a little too, uh, what would you say, metropolitan for me or something. There's there's a um, disorganization to Raleigh that really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. I went to and I went to college in Raleigh, and uh, I never quite I never quite figured it out. I never quite understood what people liked about it so much. Yeah, and I've I've always preferred dirty old Durham. It's got more color, more character, more history that I, I resonate with. But uh, it has taken a dip um, with this general collapse of our uh, civilizational empire lately, with the the wokeism, with the uh, pandemic. Um, and last Saturday was a really great example of what that dip looked like. And uh, would you like to take the story from there for a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say it looked a little bit like Asheville. <laughs> yeah, Trashville. Yeah, um, it was raining, and I for one was glad of it because I know that we need the rain. Um, but what that meant was we were kind of going to be stuck in the van all day. And so we decided to go to one of our parks that has a covered shelter. So in case we did want to get out of the van and like cook or just hang out, get some fresh air from Sherlock panting in our faces and farting and stuff like that, um, we could do that. But first things first, you know, we uh, plug in our two electronic devices because there's two outlets there. It happened to be the fan battery and my raggedy ass laptop that's held together by painter's blue tape. And, um, we went, well, we kind of started doing our meditation in the van. Gumby came back to the van. We started meditating for 20 minutes, 20 minutes. And within that 20 minutes, (laughs) somebody stole our fan battery, (laughs) the, the charger that we had just replaced because it got like toasted in Asheville. I ordered a, a new one and we had just gotten it, and it and the battery got stolen. Yep. They were trying to uh, consider whether to steal the laptop, too, but apparently opened it up and, you know, saw that they didn't have the password and just left that. But, uh, man, that's one of the more expensive, uh, financially valuable and useful things that we have in the van, that fan battery. Um, that sucked. I went back to the van and told Teresa, wow, somebody stole the fan battery. And sometimes I fuck with Teresa, like just kind of <laughs> try to get her eyes, but there must've been something about the way I said it. Like she believed me right away, got out, just cussing like, God damn it. God damn. <laughs> I went barefoot in the fucking rain, like walking went around. marching down the sidewalk. <laughs> we both like just immediately split up and went like to different places in the park. As if I'm gonna like do anything if I find the perpetrator, like, except bitch at them, you know, what am I going to do? Oh man, I don't, I don't know what I'd do if I ever caught somebody who stole something like that from me. It's like, I'm working on a purely emotional level. I feel like I would beat the pure living shit out of them, but I don't know what I would actually do. Um, but all I'm thinking is like, they've got my shit and if it's possible, I want to get it back. Cause I mean, if you've ever had something stolen from you, I don't know, especially the way we're living and the philosophy we're exploring. There's so many different elements at play here. On the one hand, I feel violated. I'm like, that motherfucker knows that's not his, knows that somebody was going to come back to get it. And what kind of person would be using this old raggedy picnic shelter to charge their devices? Somebody poor, probably homeless. So what kind of piece of dirt would do that to somebody? 
So that's one reason I want to find them, just to like confront this piece of dirt, to like give them a taste of what a shitty day I'm now having because of them. So it's now their shitty day as well. <laughs> um, not to mention getting my property back. And on the other hand, we're talking about not being so attached to possessions, mm. stuff, money. So it's like technology. Man, yeah. So it's kind of like on this other level, like you might say unburdening us a little bit, although I still, it's too fresh. I kind of wince when I try to try that idea on. <laughs> um, also, like testing us, like, okay, how are you doing with that attachment to stuff? And uh, of course, Teresa actually bought the thing, not to mention the new charger. So you might say she had a little more attachment, reasonably so. Um, and, you know, and just the livability. The fan is so important to us. There are rainy nights here that... If we don't have that fan and we got to roll up the windows, it is brutal. Sherlock's panting and panting and we're hot. I mean, it just makes for a hellacious night. We have been very lucky. Yeah. That was about like right at the end of the hot night so far. So every night since then has been like we wouldn't have needed the fan anyway. So thank God for that. But yeah, yeah, hard thing to get stuff stolen from you. Yeah. As much as I was upset that day and I think rightfully so being a human being, um, you're going to be upset when your stuff gets messed with. But, uh, I was, I was trying to look on the bright side that it wasn't April or May. Cause at this point, see, I've mentioned in an episode prior, like that fan battery or excuse me, the fan, it's like a big DeWalt, um, charged or the battery is like the type of battery that you use on a power tool, which is why it wasn't surprising that that got stolen because I mean, it's expensive, you know? And so at this point, having replaced the charger and now looking at having to replace the charger again, along with the battery, I might as well just buy a whole new fan. Because I tried looking for those components like on eBay or on Craigslist or on um, Amazon, which is where I replaced the charger from because we've got some like credit saved up with the Amazon account. It's uh, it's less expensive to buy a brand new fan complete from like Home Depot. And and at this point in the year, we don't need to do that. So, all right, fair enough. Maybe the, uh, the fan is just maybe we don't know what's going to be in our future. Yeah, we don't we don't need the fan, and barring any very unexpected, unusual weather uh, in the near future, until the hot part of next spring. And as you said, like who knows where we're going to be at? I mean, like we don't even know if we'll have the van in a. You know, I mean, life is just always so unpredictable, yeah. especially the way we're living it. And if we're not living this way, we might not need a fan. <laughs> um, that same day. Oh, that's uh, go ahead. Well, I I think I have a part of the story that you might have it might've slipped your mind. Um, I had mentioned to Gumby that, uh, we could have some grilled cheese sandwiches or something <laughs> thinking that I could cook with the Coleman stove under the shelter. And this giant group of people decided they were going to have a birthday party under the shelter. And maybe they reserved it. I don't know. Cause they didn't like, nobody put up a reserved sign. They had like a smoker. They had all sorts of like different trays with like sterno things underneath them and stuff. So here we are like, okay, our fan battery got stolen. One, two, now we are not really interested in using the shelter because there's like, I mean, what, 40 people 
under the small space and and they obviously, you know, are looking like they belong there and we're just like two hobos. So I start making our grilled cheese under the um the back what is that? Like the back door of the van that lifts up. Yeah, for a very like iffy little roof on our little Coleman stove. And I oh, I'm trying to make this. It's like raining. I don't have enough butter cuz I stupidly forgot to get some butter. And so, like, the bread's sticking, and it's shitty bread, and it's, like, falling apart, and I'm getting upset. And these Mm -hmm. two people walk by, and when I get upset, you know I start. She gets shit-smearing mad. I get shit-smearing mad. And these fuckity-fuck people walk by and see us, like, struggling to make grilled cheese sandwiches underneath the back door of our van. this old, middle-class bastard of an old white guy is, like... (laughs) Oh, cheer up. He says something like, oh, save up. You'll be able to buy a house one day. Yeah, if we, <laughs> if we stick together and we save up, we'll be able to buy a house. And it, I just was like, uh, I said, <laughs> Yeah, I said, well, we had a house. Like, we actually chose this. We gave up on that nonsense. And then the wife turns around and says something like, oh, I know. We used to do something very similar. Mm. <laughs> yes, we were we were hardcore hobos back in our day. <laughs> Never I could you tell. mind, dear. I could tell. And then a little bit later... Um, <laughs> same day. Same day. Yeah, it's time to give Sherlock his evening walk. So he's been cooped up in the van. You know, it's a rainy day, and I open the door, and uh, you know, like a lot of people do, I will consider. I don't always put Sherlock on a leash, but when I open the door, I often let him jump out just for a second, unless I see a you know obvious hazard. So he jumped out. He immediately saw this woman and kind of trotted over to her. He might have like, Oof, you know, something like that. It wasn't like a attack. It wasn't a dangerous thing. It was just. I don't know. Maybe not the most polite dog greeting is about the worst I could say for it. And this woman throws up her hands and says, Sir, sir, can you please get your dog? Please control your dog? Like it's this emergency situation. Um, so I am not in the mood for this fucking shit. So I say something, you know, kind of joking. But yeah, no, looking back, I realized like I really didn't need to say that. But <laughs> I said, well, it's all right. He's already eaten a couple people today. He's probably not still hungry. You're all right. And she said, That's horrible. Do you realize what you just said? People get attacked by dogs here. And she's just such the poster child of, like, liberal white chick. She's even got, like, little pimples on her face in the shape of a mask. (laughs) Where she'd been fucking wearing a mask that much. Um, She wasn't wearing a mask then, so maybe this was her her first outing into the big dangerous world without a mask. (laughs) And like, here's my hobo ass with my out-of-control dog about to eat her alive. And uh, she says something like, I don't know your dog. And I said, well, let me introduce you. His name's Sherlock. What's your name? And she's like, I don't want to know. And she goes stomping off. Now, keep in mind, (laughs) these two events might not seem that, I don't know, unexpected. But this is a park we used to go to all the time. We would always plug up our stuff here. This is one of our rainy day places. Never had anything get stolen. Bam, it's stolen. This is a park we go to all the time. I walk Sherlock off leash all the time. As soon as he gets out of the van, bam, I run into this like offended liberal. I'm like, what the fuck is going on with Durham? So we let it go. I put Sherlock on a, a leash because Teresa's like brightly saying like, you know, things to the effect of like, man, do we need any more shit in our day? This seems like the kind of place that somebody would take a picture and like send it to the cops or something. And, you know, I, I'm struggling with my like defiance of like, they're not going to tell me what to do or my 
acknowledgement <laughs> of her observation of like, yeah, this. I mean, maybe we shouldn't invite any more shit right now. I think we're kind of full up. So I put Sherlock on a leash, and sure enough, we pass that woman again, walk doing her lap, and you know, she uh, avoids eye contact. I just look at her, like kind of daring her to say something else, but she didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. Um, so we feed Sherlock, load up in the van. It's time to find a place to sleep. Hmm. So. We go to one of our favorite motel parking lots when we're in, in town in Durham. This is a Red Roof Inn, and it's like this nice little quiet parking lot. And there's this one little corner that like is next to some kind of woodsy place. So if in the middle of the night, one of the best places when you're in town is to be next to a woodsy place in case you do have to take a crap in the middle of the night. Almost never happens for us. But that one time it happens. You're really going to want that plan B. <laughs> and it gives you psychologically a feeling of like security. There's yeah. a place I could go. And Gumby will open up this, his sliding door and sometimes like pee out the door. Yeah, I'll pee out the door. So that's another <laughs> advantage of facing the woods and not towards people. So this this place really works. And back before the pandemic, they had some of the best motel coffee in the morning. Oh, yeah. So we pull up there back in, and I almost immediately notice a couple spaces down this van that looks a little bit like ours, but it's gray, different model, and it is beat up. There's a sliding door that's like supposed to be duct tape taped on to the van to the van and it's kind of sitting crooked like the duct tape is failing (laughs) a window is down i don't know if anybody's in there or not but like i said it's a rainy evening and one of the windows is down so i noticed that i point out to Teresa, like man i hope that's not another homeless person because it looks like they ain't doing it right that's the kind of homeless (laughs) that like draws attention we don't need but we decide like all right it's a reasonable risk we'll just you know go to sleep and just hope for the best Well, I happen to get up. I'm like kind of restless. You know, I'm not feeling settled, partly because of that van, partly because of the screwed up day we were having. And I look over there and there's this woman that has moved to the driver's seat. Apparently she was laying down and she just has her head on the steering wheel. I don't know if she's passed out, if she's like bleakly depressed, if she's sick, but she ain't doing good. For whatever reason, she's now in the driver's seat. Her head's on the wheel. So I notice that. I tell Teresa like, oh, she's in there, you know, like. That's weird. Like, oh, she's all right. A little bit later, I hear the door and she gets out. So I peek out to see what she's doing. You know, I mean, when you live in a van, you get used to kind of really paying close attention to your surroundings. If there's a threat out there, you want to know before it's like right reaching through the window, so to speak. And that was the kind of day we were having anyway. So she gets in front of the van, yanks down her pants and, uh, I'm thinking, oh, she's about to pee. What a horrible place to pick. Like I said, I'm kind of near the wood. She could have found a better place, but she didn't. She's going to do it right in front of her van, uh, facing away from the motel, but still like under the streetlights, pretty public. So I'm like, damn, man, what kind of person are we sleeping next to? This person, like more and more, I'm thinking, what kind of attention might they draw that we might get sucked into just through proximity? And as Gumby is kind of narrating this whole scenario to me, you know, I'm I'm taking glimpses out my window, but I didn't look to see when she was using the bathroom. And I figured, you know, I almost had to go out and use the bathroom, even though I've got my pee jar that's uh, for emergencies if we're in a place where I don't feel comfortable getting out. But I'm like, yeah, you know, she might have thought she could get away with it because sometimes you can. Those tweener spots that we... Um, talk about a lot. That was not a good tweener spot. But no, yeah. it was not. But uh, wait and uh, hear the rest. Well, <laughs> I noticed that I didn't hear a door again, which kind of got me suspicious. You know, like I make note of things and then I kind of like try to relax, but I'm still paying attention. I'm like, <laughs> I should be hearing a door. She should be getting in that van. So I peek my head up there again and she's still 
in the squatting position, leaning against her van bumper in the front, and I see a pile of shit underneath her. And I'm like, oh, my God, she is taking a shit right in this parking lot. And, uh, you know, there's a number of things going through my head. One is disgust, like, what the fuck is wrong with people? And, like, we need to get out of here. I don't know what would drive a person to this. And also, like, a little bit later when that passes a little bit is, like, sympathy. Like, man, nobody wants to be shitting against their van in a parking lot. Whether it's mental illness, whether it's drugs, whether she's just that sick, um, it's sad, you know, and this was a black woman, not a young black woman, not an old lady either. But the reason why I bring up she's a black woman is as we're leaving, you know, I'm, I'm deciding like I hate she doesn't necessarily know we're in the van. So I'm kind of hating to draw attention to us at this point, because for one, to cause her more embarrassment, like, oh, she was definitely seen, you know, we're right there and now we're moving. So the embarrassment it causes her. And for another, I don't know how crazy she is. I don't know how she might react to this, like, emotionally charged situation of embarrassment. She might start flinging shit at us. I don't know. Yeah. But as we're leaving, right almost immediately around the corner, I pass these houses with these fucking pompous little Black Lives Matter signs. And I'm thinking, how fucked up is it that here is a black life, one of these black lives that matter? What was this woman's options? I guess she didn't have the money to get a motel room. She maybe didn't have the experience to know how to shit more privately without one, like we've, you know, explored. Why couldn't she just go around the corner, find the first house that has a sign that says Black Lives Matter? We are not even just saying all lives matter. We are focused on one skin color. Your skin color matters to us. What are the odds that that woman would be able to knock on the door and say, I desperately need to use your bathroom? She apparently didn't find them very uh, high, not high enough to just feel like, oh, here's my neighbor. Here's a member of my group. It just, to me, exposed the facade, yeah. you know, that this woman is having to go to such extremes within easy walking distance of a Black Lives Matter sign. Um, that grated on my nerves. So all these things, like I said, a park that we'd been to before, never had anything stolen, never had a confrontation like that, right to a motel we'd go to all the time, one of our safe spaces, and never ran into something like that, a person driven to that extreme in that parking lot. And these are all just signs of like, signs of stress in Durham. Durham is going to shit. Exactly. Exactly. I had to ask Gumby, how many people have you seen taking a shit in your life? Like shitting. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it. And I was, Teresa and I uh, talked quite a bit about that uh, that evening. We drove all the way out to the country, which is more gas than I wanted to use for just finding a place to sleep. But to one of our safer places, it's like no neighbors. <laughs> we're generally there by ourselves. Um, and yeah, I was telling Teresa, I don't think I've ever seen anybody taking a shit. And it was a very eventful thing. Um, so in that way, it was worth seeing because you probably <laughs> won't see that again unless you're into some real kinky, weird shit. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> but also, you know, Teresa did not look and I did. And I still can't unsee it. Yeah, so, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate on many levels. And, um, you know, I also had the reflections that Gumby had about, like, at first, just completely disgusted. I'm like, we got to get out of here. Because not only do we not know the mental stability of this person, but now we've got an actual vector of disease. We've got a live shutter. Like, there is a pile of shit right next to us, and there is no telling what's going to happen next. 
So, and we've been having a bad, a shitty day. So just to, you know, put a um, cherry on top. Yeah. But we survived that Saturday. (laughs) I will, I will say this, you know, again, that person, um, I feel really bad for that person. And so I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest to any van lifers that might be listening. We had mentioned a, a van lifer that we know who's an older lady and she talked up and down about, she praised the uh, cat litter, kitty litter inside of a Ziploc bag. You can try that if you have to take a shit. I would say at the very least, get some sort of cardboard box, like a sturdy cardboard box, like pizza box cardboard or, or you know, thicker. Um, maybe you can have some kitty litter or whatever you want to do, but at least have something in your van so that if there is an emergency that you don't have to like shit in a well-lit public place and leave it there, etc. At the very least, I mean, I know it's gross to think about shitting in your van, but it's in a box. Maybe you can even rig it up so it's ready for with like a, you know, trash bag or something around it and you can dispose of it in a better way somewhere else soon. But I'm just saying, like, the more people that are losing their minds, that are losing their homes. Losing their shit. Losing their shit. We cannot have people shitting on the curbs in cities. It's going to lead to something a lot worse than the vid. Yeah. Good advice. Shit happens. Be prepared. Um, And while we're on the topic of one of my favorite topics, uh, liberals. Oh. (laughs) Well, no. Shit is one of your favorite topics. I like hating on the liberals. Um, Teresa introduced me to a man that I had not heard his name because we don't really follow news, much less local news or anything. But North Carolina now has its first black um, lieutenant governor. And Teresa, can you introduce us to um, Mark Robinson and tell us why he was interesting enough for you to share him with me? Well, I um, I think... It must have been one of those spoon-fed news stories to me on the Google page. Like, it tells you all the news stories that they want you to know about. And it said something about, like, uh, North Carolina lieutenant governor won't back down or, like, stands with his words or whatever. And um, his words were uh, seemingly very—I mean, seemingly. They were very inflammatory. Um, He said something about— transgender and homophobia or, or excuse me, homosexuality. Wait a second. I'm talking saying that they were um, filth, but that wasn't the whole story. And so I went and looked for the video and he was saying like, he won't back down from what he said because he is trying to make sure that children are not being taught filth in school And he showed examples of some of the things that were, he was saying were filth. And they were pictures from books in the schools of like people giving blowjobs and like um, homosexual sex between men. And while I am not saying that homosexuality is filth, I am saying I don't think that needs to be taught to children. Yeah, I mean, it's never been taught in a heterosexual way. I didn't see any pictures remotely like that when I went to school of heterosexual sex. So how is a movement that's supposed to be about acceptance and equality 
getting this fucking free card for like, okay, now we're going to share just flat out like guys fucking to kids. (laughs) What is the necessity of that? Where is the, it's just madness. You know, when you said inflammatory, I think most of what this guy says is just fucking common sense, but we live in such a triggered, insane culture that you can just say common sense and it inflames and offends people. (laughs) You are considered the radical. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And uh, what about the other video you shared with me? Um, well, that was the video where he was saying, like, he won't back. Oh, 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 I know. It was about um, the voting card or vo- voting ID requirements in Georgia. And I guess he must have been uh, a part of some, like, hearing or something where they were talking about Georgia because he's the lieutenant governor of North Carolina. And he was saying, again, some very common sense things about how the Democrats will try and argue with you that it's racist to require voter IDs or some sort of ID to be able to vote. And the the connecting the dots is that black people are not smart enough to obtain in Georgia a free ID. Um, and it's not that expensive to get in North Carolina. I don't even know if you can get one for free if you have certain circumstances, but it's like it used to be about ten dollars or something for an ID. And it was so satisfying to hear this this black man, this veteran, uh, just tearing the Democrats a new asshole for this <laughs> like philosophy that I've been saying for years, like, how is this not racist? You think black people can't figure out how to get IDs? That's the 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 racism behind the requiring voter IDs, I don't get it. And to hear like this guy call them out because <laughs> it's such a problem for the leftists because they assume they set themselves up as the defenders of women, blacks, homeless people, any group that they think is like oppressed and beaten down enough that they can step in, be the savior and convince them, oh, if you empower us, We'll speak up for you. And it's so good to see a member of one of those groups say, that's bullshit. Like, that's actually racist what you're saying. Yeah. So I really applaud this guy. It doesn't mean I'm going to vote for him. I don't vote for anybody. I don't believe, like, even, I don't care who runs, the act of voting I'm against. To me, that's condoning a system I don't agree with. But I got to say, sometimes there's a politician that as long as they're, like, dropping truth bombs, I'm rooting for I'd rather see that guy uh, get some power and stay in office than a lot of the other people that are just blatant liars. I feel like this guy is trying to be true to something closer to integrity than other people. And I got to say, I'm a little bit worried about him. Yeah. Um, He's coming out in such a brave, courageous, honest way. And of all times, I mean, maybe it's been like this all the time, but our culture does not take care of people like that. Or if they do take care of them. They, they take, take care of them. Yeah, in a more permanent way. Yeah, so some I, of the I'm uh, keeping an eye on this guy, Mark Robinson. He's uh he's coming out, he's really fighting the tide of things, and uh I love how honest he is. I love how he's just like, I'm not backing down, I'm not here to fucking impress anybody, I'm here because I'm trying to do what's right, and as long as you people support me, I will go as far as I can. And uh if I can't go any further, well god damn it, at least I tried. And I love that spirit. Yeah, I was looking at comments on the videos that he had, and there were people that were saying, like, you know, right on, I I can't wait till you become governor of North Carolina, like really supporting him. But it didn't take long to find the comments 
that uh, referred to our first black lieutenant governor of North Carolina as an Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. And he is a Republican, and uh, we can presume that his opposition is coming from the uh, very sensitive, politically correct Democratic Party. Yeah. So there you go. Like, once again, a couple examples already of uh, how far Black Lives Matter goes. Apparently, um, vaccinated, Democratic, uh, housed Black Lives Matter, <laughs> at least. Um Another phrase while we're on the topic of, uh, you know, kind of wokeism and and such is uh, a term we've run into this week is the cotton ceiling. Would you like me to try to explain this or do you want to take a shot at it? Well, I just want to say we heard about this term yesterday listening to a podcast interview that Josh Slocum was um, giving. And when he when the guest mentioned cotton ceiling. And the guest was a gay man, by the way, a rapper who had been attacked by the, uh, what, the trans crowd? Well, he had been attacked by homophobic people at first. Homophobic straight people. Mm-hmm. And, and he had at now one, he's taken on the trans. Yeah. At one point in his life, he's like 30 years old, um, he said that he had been transgender, um, specifically gender non-binary. And he had been pressured to... Um, to take on those labels, but as it turns out, he's he's gay. He's he's when I say just, he's he's a gay man. He's not gender non-binary. He's not transgender. He's a gay man. He likes men. And they say a lot of this uh, trans movement is a direct attack on gay people. A boy might you know be growing up and realize like I like boys. Um, I like doing a lot of the things that typically girls like to do. This person might grow up just to be gay. No surgery, no uh, chemical dependence, no puberty blockers necessary um, that actually might fuck up this person's life royally and permanently. Just a gay person, a gay person that could have a very happy, full life. But now they're being diagnosed with gender dystopia. Dysphoria. Dysphoria. (laughs) Dystopia is what we're living in. Dystopia is what we're living in. You are correct. Um, And... That this person is now much more likely to be told, actually, you are probably a girl in a boy's body, but we have science and medical treatment for that. Um, And it's just like a lot of gay people more and more are standing up. Of course, they're getting no media attention that I've noticed um, are saying this is an attack on homosexuality. You're trying to lump us together like the gay trans movement, but actually not only are we not together, we're not the same. One group has no, uh, we don't believe we were born in the wrong body, but we're actually more and more in opposition to each other. So again, in that line of thinking, the cotton ceiling. So again, going back to where I started, you want me to try to explain it or are you going to take a shot at it? Well, I wanted to just put in there that as I was listening to this interview and they mentioned the cotton ceiling, um, they were speaking about lesbians um, as part of this uh, description of what the cotton ceiling is about. And I thought, oh, are they talking about, are they going to say that this has something to do with like tampons or like sanitary pads, like cotton, you know, it's like made out of, you know, some sort of cottony type material. And then when I heard the other accompanying term boxer ceiling, I was like, oh my effing God, 
They're talking about panties. Gumby. Okay, so the line of thinking goes something like this. I feel like, let's say for the sake of argument, I feel like I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, at first, what I demand is that you don't need to believe that, but please validate that. Use my pronouns just out of respect for me um, because it really hurts my feelings when you tell me something that I know I'm not. I know I'm a woman in a man's body, so please use the proper pronouns. And a lot of people, eh, what does it cost him? I was in this group. Okay, I mean, if you want to be called a she, I'm seeing a man, but, you know, if you're so upset by this that you're actually threatening, you might kill yourself over this. Hell, it doesn't cost me that much. And so that goes on to now I demand entrance into women's spaces. Hey, why can't I go in that women's restroom? You just said I'm she, right? I'm a woman, right? Right? So why can't I go in there? What are you? Do you really think I'm a man? What are you, a liar? Are you a bigot? What's the matter with you? So as a culture, that is allowed. So we start making all these laws that men can actually go to women's prisons where they are routinely sexually assaulting women, where female prisoners and guards are both saying they don't want these violent men in women's prisons. doesn't matter. There's this one fragile group. Their rights somehow eclipse everyone else's. Everyone else's. So now, because we gave in a little bit, they pushed a little bit more. Now they're getting into women's sports. These men, men, we're talking about men. These men are invading women's sports, out-competing women, sometimes hurting women, getting into women's locker rooms, getting into women's bathrooms, getting into women's prisons, getting into women's rape shelters. Now, if a woman's just been raped and she's going to a rape shelter for help, maybe the last fucking thing she wants to see is a man in there. So this madness is happening. Now, here's another step of that I was not aware of in the cotton ceiling. Here's how the thinking goes. Again, for the sake of argument, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Let's say Teresa is a lesbian. Teresa is a lesbian, meaning she is attracted to other women. She wants to have sex with other women. That's what she's into. I am a woman. At least that's what my culture has now validated for me, even though I look like a man. I am in the body of a man. Maybe I plan on getting uh, surgery. Maybe not. Nonetheless, I am a woman. So I go up to Teresa and say, Teresa, um, you say you're a lesbian, but I can't help but notice I never see you dating trans women, a.k.a. men. <laughs> what kind of uh, – I can't help but feel that's a little bit hate hateful and discriminatory. Um I'm seeing some bigotry here, Teresa. Um, I think, like, what you should do is allow me to put my woman's penis in your vagina. And that is lesbian because I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. So the cotton ceiling is a reference, a vulgar reference, to a woman's underwear that the man pretending to be a woman can't get past the cotton ceiling. It has reached that level of fucking crazy. That's one of the reasons I said a while back, I said I used to, you know, cater down to the, the pronouns. Like, ah, oh, what the hell? I don't agree with them. I'll debate that. But, you know, when it comes to just interaction, like, okay, I mean, this guy wants me to call him a she, she. But every step of the way, every time we get nudged and go back a little bit, 
It's never enough. They push further and further. And now we're to the point where the gay community, the gay community that the liberals were defending, remember all that thing about gay marriage? Yay, we did it. Now that group is under attack by this crazy fucking group of trans people. Not all of them. I want to be careful not to like be a collectivist here. There are trans people that are speaking out against this. They're speaking out against trans men in women's or men in women's sports. Um, not every trans person has completely lost their fucking mind, but enough of the movement has that it's making a big impact. And the boxer ceiling is basically everything I said reversed. There are women shaming gay men, bullying gay men because the gay men will not sleep with them because they say, I am actually a man. That is my gender reality. So... Yeah, that was a new one on me. I just wanted to pass that along. If you run into cotton ceiling, boxer ceiling, this is apparently something going on in the gay community. Yeah, and um, yeah, if you if you look into that online, it's interesting because um, I did. I often do. In fact, Gumby and I are uh, going to try something new um, beginning today, actually, with our online time and... Uh, use of our time in general. But it's interesting to see how the transgender community kind of fired back at how the lesbian, gay, bisexual community is using the cotton ceiling or boxer ceiling terms. And if you read the article, you start to feel like, well, wait a second, like, how is this so different? Because According to the history, the um, transgender history of the word cotton ceiling, it was coined by a trans woman, a.k.a. a man, named Drew DeVoe, who is a porn star, a transgender porn star, who wanted to be cast in lesbian pornography. But he's not a woman. But he says he's a woman. And that is kind of supposed to be in reference to like the glass ceiling, but I don't think so, y'all. I think somebody is trying to like confuse the truth with something that makes them look like a victim again. So I just don't understand how there can be so much difference between what one group is saying the word means and what the, um, what the group that is supposedly like pushing their agenda on the gay community is saying. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And yeah, I, I'm just feeling like I really got to take a step back from all this. Yeah. There's so many issues. I, I, unlike Teresa, like Teresa just doesn't engage with people over this much. Um, I do. I really make a point of getting on like social media. And if I see a, what I conceive of as a bad argument, a, a hateful stance on a post, which is mostly in the leftist camp, I used to argue more with, uh, Republicans, because sometimes they'd put hateful stuff about Muslims. and uh, But I don't see that much anymore. It's just all been eclipsed by leftist garbage. Um, I would be, I'd find it remarkable that I would try to use logic. I would try to use reasoning. Like, if this, then this. What do we mean? Like, does this make sense? And that what you find most often is that 
There is no logic. There is no good argument. You will quickly run into them calling you names, calling you a Nazi, calling you a fascist, uh, anything to deflect the fact that there's nothing behind their arguments. It's just complete demagoguery. Um, and I started realizing, like, how do they do this? How is this movement so powerful that you can't even have a logical discussion with these people? How is this possible? What is this tactic? And it occurred to me this week, I've seen this before. I actually researched this when we were doing our presidents. Um, and again, wow, this is the second president that we've mentioned in this episode. I'm so glad we did those boring-ass episodes because I learned so much. <laughs> Nixon. There was a guy that worked in Nixon's campaign that was talking to a reporter after, you know, the whole Watergate thing and um, a couple years after. And he's saying, our biggest enemies, our biggest opponents in the Nixon administration were blacks and war protesters. Now, we couldn't come out blatantly and say there was anything wrong with blacks or war protesters. So what we did was we created a war on drugs. And then we fed information to the media, the nightly news, over and over and over, story after story, connecting drugs with blacks and war protesters. Did we know it was a lie? Hell yeah, we knew it was a lie. I mean, I'm not saying a direct quote, but he did admit, like, yes, we knew this was a lie. It was a tactic. This is how we attacked our opponents that we couldn't attack right out. I realize the liberals are using a, a similar tactic right now. They can't blatantly come out against their enem one of their enemies, which is logic itself. Mm. Their yeah. views, their stances don't hold up against reason. I invite you to calmly as you can, if you don't share these views, engage with an extreme liberal. You can find them all over the place. Just start asking questions. See how quickly this shit falls apart. Now, you got to be on your toes. you got to have done some research so you can ask the right questions and ask follow-up questions. Some of them hang in there longer than others. But it's remarkable when you address this group how quickly the logic will fall apart, more quickly than a lot of other groups you'll engage with. That at least have a logical stance, even if you don't agree with it. They can't attack logic itself. That would be insane. It would reveal how crazy their stances are. So what they've done is they've attacked whiteness and maleness, especially, you put those together, the white male. There's all kinds of words to dismiss people of these two groups. White privilege, your whiteness is showing, you're mansplaining something. And when you start looking at attributes, they've divided these attributes like, well, here are white traits, here are man traits versus uh, people of color traits or women's traits. What you see put in the man, white category, among other things, is logic. So now, if I try to approach somebody in a discussion and debate them logically with logic, well, I'm a lot easier to dismiss now. They couldn't attack logic, but they could attack whiteness and maleness. I mean, we kind of brought it on ourselves, white guys. Look at history. I mean, <laughs> we have fucked up a lot. They've got a lot more platform to attack us than logic itself. So now, baby with the bathwater. Now logic gets subtly slipped into that sh shuffle of cards. And because it's coming from a white male, boom, they can be dismissed. That's why I love it so much when somebody like Mark Robinson as a black man stands up or Josh Slocum as a gay man or people in these groups because it's harder to dismiss the argument because they've attached logic to the white male. 
it's harder to dismiss how come this black guy is saying the same thing. He's not supposed to be using this this white tool of logic, <laughs> which is an extremely racist view. He might be the black face of white supremacy. Yeah. Or Uncle Tom, as yeah. they say. Oh, my gosh. I thought I was going to say something. Oh, so what you're saying is that it is racist to have a logical discussion. Not just racist, but sexist. Yeah. Yeah. So just do away with logic and rational reason, especially rational linear reason, well, if I recall. Well, unless you want to be a hate monger and cater to the white males mm-hmm. who are, you know, the oppressor and everybody else is the oppressed. I mean, you wouldn't want to do that, would you? That's really convenient. It is so convenient. It is such a effective and yet flimsy tool. And that's part of what's so horrifying about what's happening nowadays is the tools that are so effective to control people, divide people, get people scared shitless are really flimsy. I mean, it's like you can look underneath them. It's, it's pretty easy to pull the curtain back and see like, oh, there's nothing here. And yet they are extremely effective. There's whole countries like Australia under lockdown right now. Australia that started as a penal colony and has become one once again. <laughs> hey, I want to uh, regale our audience with a blast from the past, from my past about how sex became synonymous with gender. (laughs) We had a very heated discussion yesterday where I was trying to be the devil's advocate. We had gotten high, too. And uh, I was saying, Teresa, I'm going to try to do my best to argue for the other side of someone who believes in gender and all that. And, oh, my God, man, the fucking knots we got into trying to... to find our way through the divisions of sex and gender. And I guess I'll leave it there because I don't know what you're going to get into. Yeah, I just want to say that um, I was I was born in the early 80s. And so this is going to be about the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s. I remember when you had to fill out demographic information about yourself there would be the um, category of sex. And it would have M, F, or male, or female. And then, um, as time went on, I saw various like applications or surveys that I was a part of, especially when I was in college. Um, and this would have been in like 2001 2000 to 2005, but obviously um, after that too. I started to see a lot more times that the word sex was being replaced by the word gender. And sometimes if it was a paper survey or some sort of like test where I had to fill out demographic information, I would cross out the word gender and I would write the word sex. And I thought naively, and I think I've said this before in an episode, I thought it was maybe because like we were so prudish in our society, you know, our society where, uh, you know. (laughs) where the girls let you come on their faces, as Marilyn Manson would say. Um, We're in America. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, are we so prudish that we can't use the word sex anymore? Are they just, they don't want the word sex to be on something that you have to fill out? I mean, it's biological. It's not a filthy word. It's your sex. Are you male or female? Or, of course, I know there's the intersex. 
Um, and some of the some of the um, surveys that I would fill out would also have a third choice that would be prefer not to say. And sometimes I would choose that because I thought, well, I don't know what they're trying to do with this information, but I want to screw it up. I don't want them to know that I am a female filling this out. I'd prefer that that doesn't even come into the figures of of whatever they're trying to do with this information. So sometimes I'd fill in prefer not to say, especially if I couldn't change the word gender to sex, I'd just get pissed off. So I was trying to explain this to Gumby, and Gumby, you remember on work applications, it would ask your gender, right? Yeah, and it was, at that time, treated synonymously with sex. That was, in fact, what they were asking. I could tell by the choices. I could tell by knowing the employer. They were actually asking my sex. Mm -hmm. But the word gender was used as meaning the same thing as far as the employer and as far as me, the employee, was concerned. And listen, I'm not saying there wasn't a choice under the word gender. I am about to say something. We didn't have a choice that they changed it from sex to gender. There was no choice. Somebody, for some reason, changed that word in our society, in our lexicon. And now we have all of these different groupings of of what gender is, and especially gender identity. See, when I was going to school in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s, I didn't have a gender identity. Now, you might argue that I did, but I just didn't know it. But I didn't. I didn't think about my gender. I understood that there is such a thing as a social construct, an ideal of like masculine and feminine in my society. And the way I dress, the way I sit or walk, as I was demonstrating to Gumby, and even <laughs> and even qualities and characteristics of inanimate objects, so like a chair or a table or a rock or, a tr- well, I mean, a tree's alive. Um, and as animus, everything has life. But I guess what I'm saying is maybe in, in a society, feminine might mean it's like curvy or soft or nurturing masculine it might be like a warrior it might be sharp or like aggressive or something like that those are attributes or characteristics or qualities to have to assign someone a gender identity which by the way nobody has up until this point that would be cruel because throughout the day throughout our lives We fluidly move through various states of masculine and feminine, whether it's walking, whether it's talking, whether it's, you know, what we wear, how we sit. To have to, to have to choose a gender identity, whatever that means, and then to be told like, well, if you choose a gender identity that doesn't fit your biological body, that you have to, or that, you know, it would be helpful to then have some sort of corrective surgery. That just doesn't make any sense to me, y'all. That just doesn't make any sense. You weren't, there was never a gender identity problem because there wasn't a gender identity. This is a new thing that people started doing. And when they started it, it became a problem. And when there's a problem, there can be solutions. And aren't they selling solutions now? 
And it also got me to thinking about gender-bending celebrities that were in the 70s, 80s, even before that. Um, I was looking up just like some examples. Uh, Boy George, Annie Lennox, some might say David Bowie. Oh yeah, I'd say David Bowie. Um, These were people... Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson. These were people who, for you know, whatever they're doing in their personal life, whatever the headlines say, um, showed us like a big fuck you to what society tells me I'm supposed to be. But you know what they didn't need? Validation. Nor did they need a law to protect what they were doing. In fact, they were so fucking cool because they didn't need validation for what they were doing. And they didn't need laws to protect. That's what made it so, like, so brazen and bold. And I'm not saying it's the same thing as what transgender people are saying that they're going through. But it's just interesting that gender identity has become such a big thing when people were gender bending for a long time. I mean, some people might even argue that it's always been in our culture. It's always been a part of our species to gender bend. And gender, if you look it up, my goodness, the definition is uh, is definitely changing. But something I remember is that sex is biological and gender is a psychological social construct. It changes through time and from society to society. So I think technically we probably all are gender fluid, um, but we don't need to label ourselves that because it's just a concept. It's not an identity label or some box that you have to stay in. Yeah. You were brave to share all that, Teresa. Stunning and brave. You know, I was actually born in the wrong body. I was supposed to be petite yet muscular and have very slim ankles mm-hmm. and small feet. Yeah, this this line of thinking that Teresa introduced when she brought up like the difference between celebrities of the past who were more gender fluid and our current situation led to a lot of interesting discussions we've had this week. I thought it was a really cool insight she had of the difference that the celebrities of the past didn't need validation, which is what made it cool, and that it's so gone the other way that what we're facing now is people that thrive, that in, will kill themselves if they are not validated immediately in every way, and then some. And, uh, you know, to be the devil's advocate, we pointed out the difference as we're talking, like, well, these celebrities are just not being trapped in this identity. They don't, they're not saying they're born in the wrong body, whereas the current trans people say they're born in the wrong body. And yet I would still say that the way they conduct themselves, the need to have like the rebellious, strong faith in who you are, it doesn't matter what other people see, I know it, I feel it, I have faith, versus I am so fragile that if everybody doesn't tell me that they see what I see right now, I'm going to kill myself right now. (laughs) I still say that even with that difference, those two ways of conducting yourself, of carrying yourself in this world, apply to anyone who goes through this world. So I think it's a really cool observation, and as Teresa just alluded to, you know, like, wow, where does that being born in the wrong body end? Like, uh, I, I thought I was supposed to be, like, have hair. I thought I was supposed to have hair my whole life on top of my to, head. I was supposed to have bigger boobs. I was supposed to be fit and muscular. Like, yeah. you know, like... 
All these things lead to a thinking that's similar in the neighborhood of being born in the wrong body. It's not, I feel like I'm a fit man. I feel like I'm a very handsome man inside. So that leads to not just uh, gender affirming surgery or whatever the fuck we're calling it now, um, plastic surgery, which I was against that when I started growing up and hearing about nose jobs. You know, like you were supposed to have a better nose. Mm -hmm. Let's get that fixed. Yeah. It's a dark road. It's always been a dark road. It's working on the wrong things, the externals. The externals are fleeting and go away. It's it's a complete deflection from the important things we should be working on, the deep things, what we truly are. And I didn't want to get into a whole thing about that. Like you, uh, you kind of took us there and <laughs> you had some good observations. But yeah, we got into a lot of that with uh, the Transhuman Podcast. Sorry, Mike H., and uh, yeah, so I'm not sorry. I think we did a really good job of responding to his comment. And I would I would welcome further comments as long as they are, you know, kind. You can disagree with us, but don't just like you're an asshole. I mean, that's not. No, really... I was just being cheeky. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we welcome. I mean, we actually talked about uh, like la- last episode, we read a. Uh, message to us that was critical and brought up a lot of good points, a lot of good platforms for discussion. And we actually really liked that. We talked a lot about that. Like, man, I wish you would get more of that kind of thing. I kept having Gumby check our um, messages to see if anybody else had. Yeah, yeah. Teresa was really hoping we'd have something else like that to share this episode. So if you're listening to this and, uh, you know, you have any. Yeah, well. It's our outro. I'll wait to, to go into that. But yeah, challenge even, us. Even if you want to be the devil's advocate, even if you're listening and you want to like hone your skills. Exactly. Even if you don't believe it, try to challenge it. If there's a, a hole in the logic, something you think is missing, that's how we all get better. Not just in understanding other points of view, but in honing our own views and arguments. Yeah, totally. So are we ready to move on? Yes. Well, you know, I was thinking back to that Saturday we were describing and a big feeling that we had that I wanted to bring up was, uh, you know, <laughs> Teresa, <laughs> Teresa was, we were both down, but Teresa gave it a, gave it words. And she said, there's no place for us, Gumby. There's no place for us in this world. And man, that's the way it feels sometimes, you know, like the craziness of this, like the trans stuff we're talking about, all the wokeism, uh, Somebody stealing our shit, uh, being run off by cops, having to struggle to find a place to park, having to figure out like what we're going to do about money because we, we don't have the skills and don't even know if there's a place if we had the skills to go use them to exist. And just so completely being disillusioned and dis- disenfranchised with the status quo, just completely not wanting to support or participate or believe in that anymore. Yeah, it just... Uh, Sometimes it feels like, where in this world are we supposed to be? <laughs> and uh, that's that's something, yeah, that was a part of our week, kind of struggling with that. I'm in a better mood at the moment, but yeah, boy, yeah. when this you said that. This is a better that, mood. This is a better mood. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know that also, like I, I just in passing mentioned it, like rambling as I do, um, that I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that we had all those experiences in this past week because it's led me to a place where, um, like Gumby, you helped me realize this, that all this scrolling, all this reading about everything online, about the cotton ceiling, about, you know, the meaning of gen... Jesus Christ, I don't care. I mean, I care in a sense that there's a bigger picture and there's like stuff going on and I I feel for future generations of what this world is going to look like. But you know what? I can't change any of that. The only thing I can change is myself. So why don't I start there? And so um, 
I am going to work on skills that are going to help me to um, further step away from society. Skills that once you learn them, I mean, I have a bad memory, but like if I really, really learn something, I won't forget it. Like you can't take that away from me. And all this other stuff is just eating up my precious time. Hey, you keep making kind of loose allusions to it. Do you want to uh, just explain that kind of new organization you're going to try, that new discipline? Here's my discipline. Here's what it looks like. I spend an hour um, doing things like crocheting or gardening or learning. Something hands-on. Yeah, something hands-on. Even even some reading, although I have to be careful because I don't want to read something that's just going to like put me in that same spot as I would be reading internet articles and, and like news headlines. Um, I want to read something that's at least going to prompt me to think or to like expand my mind on subjects that are meaningful in my life. Um, so if I spend an hour, for example, on knitting, crocheting or something, then I can, if I want, spend an hour online. So that's really the simple gist of it is balance. Yeah. And it's a nice small step. I think that's important. That's what uh, I like about it because I asked Teresa, you know, I said, would you say you spend a lot more time online scrolling, looking at shit that you feel like doesn't serve you than you do working with your hands on skills? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, here's a small step. Like maybe you could try, maybe you could just even it out. Like you don't have to give up something that might be hard to give up right now. Why don't you just like it's like money in the bank. Like first, you have to put in a certain amount of time with a skill with your hands, like maybe an hour. And now you've bought yourself an hour online. Mm-hmm. And so it's a win-win situation. You're going to push yourself with your skills and still be able to do the stuff that might not serve you. But uh, right now, for whatever reason, you're addicted, used to it, whatever. It's not cold turkey, but it's yeah. an improvement. And I think finding little tricks like that, like finding something that works where you're at, because a lot of times people will like try to push harder than where they're at. They'll fail. They'll get discouraged. They'll stay stagnant. I've done that my whole fucking life. So finding that way to just push yourself where you can handle it is so important. And I'm really optimistic about Teresa trying this. I think it's like it sounds like a really good effort, good move. Were you inspired by this like somewhat self-help book that you're reading to give me that advice? I wouldn't say that. <laughs> and uh, you know that's where I'm going next. So, Teresa, what are you reading before I talk about what I'm reading? Oh, shit. I didn't bring the book out. Oh, do you need it? Um, I think, hold on. It's called The Ox Herder and the Good Shepherd. Yeah. Uh, it's buried somewhere. Yeah, well, uh, uh, radio silence, Teresa. This is Teresa's equivalent of shuffling through her notes during the presidential podcast. It's never good. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Oh, she's back. Look, we're doing a podcast. Yeah. What do you know? It's called The Ox Herder and the Good Shepherd by Addison Hodges Hart, H-A-R-T. And it is a small book, but friends and listeners, uh, I suck at reading. I Well, I do everything else before... I read, so I am just just starting the book, really. I don't have much to talk about it, but um, except that it's interesting. Um, it's a guy that is, he's like a religious scholar who is tying the messages of Zen Buddhism to the messages of Jesus Christ. And um, as 
listeners may know, I am really not religious. Like, I don't go to church, um, although I, we did go to a church the other day for their food pantry, um, just in the parking lot to pick up food, and that was nice. Uh, but I guess I'm just, I'm trying to expand my understanding of Buddhism and um, and myself, and so if this book uh, gives me any insights, then I will share that in a future podcast, but that's all I'm going to say about it for now. Yeah. I recommended Teresa that book because she was like wanting to learn more about Buddhism. And, uh, we've also been running into a lot of like Christian stories that have been interesting. And I'm like, man, I ran into this book that was written by a Christian scholar and it's a perfect bridge. Um, and it's a simple little book, beautiful little book. I love it. Um, it's got some pictures too. And I mentioned the book I was reading in our last podcast. I'm almost done with it now. It is Jordan B. Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Now, Jordan Peterson, you may or may not have heard of him. He's kind of a controversial character. He's the kind of guy that, like, there have been some colleges he was going to speak at where they had rallies to stop him from speaking. Um, At first, when I started reading, I was like, I don't know what they got against the guy. And then I, now that I'm at the end, I'm like, oh, I see what they got against the guy. Um... I don't agree with everything he says, but he says it well. One thing I like is he's a very thoughtful person. He has reasons for thinking what he thinks. And um, whether you agree or not, he challenges you. He's definitely pushed me into some uncomfortable places, things I'm like, I am now in a place where I thought I knew something and I'm not ready to agree with him, but now I have to admit, like, right now, I don't fucking know. (laughs) And as Socrates pointed out, that's a powerful thing. That is a powerful truth to recognize. But my favorite thing about this book is he references old, ancient stories, and he references them in ways that are kind of platforms that get me thinking. Like he'll say just a little bit, and it'll be it'll be thoughtful, but then I'll be thinking my own thoughts based on what he said for like days afterwards and just like, oh my God, that took me down a rabbit hole. Wow. As an example... I want to share this, which is just one or two, I think two sentence, uh, two paragraphs. Now, he's referencing the an ancient Egyptian story, and I'll let him say it in his own words. This is Peterson now. The ancient Egyptians had already figured this out thousands of years ago, although their knowledge remained embodied in dramatic form. They worshipped Osiris, mythological founder of the state and the god of tradition. Osiris, however, was vulnerable to overthrow and banishment to the underworld by Set, his evil, scheming brother. The Egyptians represented in story the fact that social organizations ossify with time and tend towards willful blindness. Hmm. Osiris would not see his brother's true character, even though he could have. Set waits, and at an opportune moment, attacks. He hacks Osiris into pieces and scatters the divine remains through the kingdom. He sends his brother's spirit to the underworld. He makes it very difficult for Osiris to pull himself back together. Fortunately, the great king did not have to deal with Set on his own. The Egyptians also worshipped Horus, the son of Osiris. Horus took the twin forms of a falcon, the most visually acute of all creatures, and the still-famous hieroglyphic single Egyptian eye. Osiris is tradition, aged and willfully blind. Horus, his son, could and would, by contrast, see. Horus was the god of attention. This is not the same as rationality. Because he paid attention, Horus could perceive and triumph against the evils of Set, his uncle, 
albeit at great cost. When Horus confronts Set, they have a terrible battle. Before Set's defeat and banishment from the kingdom, he tears out one of his nephew's eyes. But the eventually victorious Horus takes back the eye. Then he does something truly unexpected. He journeys voluntarily to the underworld and gives the eye to his father. Mm. I found that so fascinating because Osiris is the embodiment. You know, if you're an anarchist like me, you kind of like have a bad connotation with the word state. So let's say for this tradition, any group of people that need to live together and work together, they need to organize. They need to have some tradition, some way of like, okay, what do we do when we disagree? What do we do when something a uh, person feels infringed upon? How do we counsel? Uh, what is our mating rituals? You know, what do we agree is like appropriate and not appropriate? You know, you might say, oh, well, whatever is, seems appropriate to whatever, but we catch this like 50-year-old man uh, with a screaming two-year-old girl that in a lot of cultures, most I would hope, would be a problem. How do we handle that? What is the approved thing? So tradition, Osiris is the organization of people working and living together for their mutual strength. Even back then in ancient Egypt, they recognized that the biggest threat, the biggest evil to, to humankind, the danger, whether it's tribes, any group of people living together, is embodied in Set. And by the way, the word Set became Satan Whoa. later. Set is the earlier version of Satan. Satan. Embodied he embodies chaos, he embodies danger, he embodies the ultimate worst threat to humankind. And this is one of the parts I find the most interesting. A common theme through all these versions of Set, Satan, the devil, Wedico, is deception. Well, I can't say Wedico necessarily. I'm not sure I ran into that with Wedico. But deception, lying, and a direct assault on reality, turning things on their head. The only time Set can attack is when Osiris is weak. So Osiris has some responsibility. When the traditions become dead, stagnant, people don't remember where they came from, why they do what they do. This is a weak culture, a weak Osiris. That's when Set comes in. And even in our, our vampire stories, you know, the vampire is no danger unless you invite him in. So Again and again, we see in our oldest stories that trace back, even older than we think with a lot of these stories, common themes. First, you have to be lax, willfully blind, and allow the evil in. When it's in, its main strategy is to turn up into down, night into day, man into woman, to turn things upside down, to deceive, to confuse. It's the Tower of Babel again that I mentioned in the last episode, where we're completely fractured. And what does Set do when he defeats Osiris? What does chaos do when it defeats tradition? He scatters the parts. Division. Mm. Division. It's the Tower of Babel bunch of people that no longer communicate. They're not part of the same tradition. They are weaker. They're scattered. They're divided. They're broken. They're fractured. And what is the thing that this ancient, ancient story passes along? This is, we've encountered this force before. It almost destroyed us. Here's what's brought us back. It's embodied in Horus. Now, Horus is said to be the precursor of Jesus. Because Horus is also connected through the falcon who flies in the sky with the sun, who they recognized as a divine, powerful thing that we're all dependent on, a bringer of good. All good things come from the sun. That's why Jesus, possibly, you know, I'm, I'm extrapolating here, 
is the son of God. You ever think that's weird? I mean, we're all children of God. Why is Jesus the one true son of God? What the hell does that mean? Well, some people think that it is a remembrance, a retelling of this old story, just like we'll have like Sherlock Holmes who took place in the 1800s, and then we retell it for modern times. We repackage it. They used to do the same thing. We think of Jesus back then 2,000 years ago, like, whoa, that's in that box of the past. It's all just a clumble of the past. Clumble. Clumble. You can you can quote me on that. <laughs> I just snorted. Uh, so back then, 2,000 years ago, that Egyptian story was an ancient story. So if it got revised and repackaged a little bit, that was their way of making it relevant. These are important things we need to remember. Now let's update it so... Our youth, our people now can feel like, oh, I have a connection to that. I see it. Um, and the weapon against set, against evil, against deception is awareness, vigilance. Think about that falcon. Think about hieroglyphics you've seen. You've probably seen pictures of this falcon. You've definitely seen that eye. This is Horus, the falcon who gets perspective. When everybody else is fighting and just looking at the nose in front of their face and the immediate thing, the falcon can go so high can see multiple cities at once. The falcon can see the big picture, and the falcon has that keen eyesight that he truly sees. Sight, sight, sight. That's emphasized so much in Horus. Sight, vision. That's the weapon against the chaos. But once the chaos, once set is already in, the only way that even that, that awareness, has a chance of standing up and defeating it is at extreme cost sacrifice. Here's another thing we see over and over and over. Sacrifice. Um, it's been with us since, to our knowledge, since humans have been around, the idea of some kind of sacrifice. He loses an eye. And then the more, the most baffling part of the story, after he finally defeats at great cost, an evil so great that it can kill gods, he retrieves his eye, takes it to the underworld to his father. Now, I'm not so sure about what that part means. I'd like to think that maybe it means I sacrificed for the revitalization of our tradition, our people, our community. And hopefully what I've seen, what worked, I'm going to pass along. Maybe that I that he gave his father is in fact the story itself, mm. the vision, the story that's now passed along. So I just took Horace's eye and passed it to you just as he passed it back to his father. I, like I said, these stories just are blowing me away, the ancient stories, because they, they are so eerily relevant to the things we're facing today. And I feel like the human creature has encountered these exact same forces down to remarkable detail and suffered from them, been demolished by them, and sometimes come back from them and they want to preserve for their children and their grandchildren and all future generations. Look, you need to be on the lookout for this. This shit is dangerous, and here is a cue of how you beat it. Pay attention. There's a Zen story I love where a guy goes to a Zen priest, and he's like, what's the most important thing you can teach me about the essence of Zen? And the guy paints a, 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 a whatever they call it in Chinese, a symbol um, that means attention. He said, is that all? Can you paint something else? Attention. For a third time, attention. It's the most important thing. Pay attention. You'll find this in tradition after tradition. Wake up. Pay attention. Pay attention. Because if you become Osiris, you get lost in the abstract, in like policies, abstractions, thoughts. You're not here. You're not present. You're weak. And that's when the evil comes in. And suddenly the evil turns everything on its head. 
Nothing makes sense. Everybody's confused or fractured. That is the most dangerous thing for us as humans. You got anything you want to say? Yeah, I um, I didn't necessarily want to bring it down from that beautiful story and interpretation and message, but uh, I was we were talking about it this morning, and I was thinking about a couple things. Horace reminded me of like how children are known to ask their parents or or adults why, you know, and I I think that's great in a way, even though it can be annoying in the situation, but. It's an opportunity for elders to really look at why they do things. And I think that's important because that is paying attention. It's not just rote. It's not just doing a ceremony or a ritual because that's the way we've always done it. If you lose the meaning of it, that's when set sets in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and also, we were talking about this morning, um, Gumby and I, about how, well, the story is an amazing defense against this this force that can work its way into our our world, our society. But on the other hand, it's not like Set or Satan, it's not like they haven't adapted or evolved. In fact, I think they have adapted to make this story from many cultures into just a story. Oh, it's a myth. It's an old wives' tale. Oh, that's folklore. You believe that stuff? Are you a science denier? We believe in science. And this isn't really based in science. And that's not to say, I'm not saying that it's either or. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting that this story has survived so long. And I mean, you might have heard it before, but this is the first time I've heard it. And it would be so easy to dismiss it as just a, just another story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things when I consider these stories is I don't know how much the embodiment of these forces as like people, gods, is just a device to be shorthand to tell a story that can be remembered and passed along and how much of it might actually be real i don't know how sentient these energies are this evil that is obviously like penetrating our culture and depending on who you are you know i'm not gonna tell you what i think i mean everybody basically knows what i think is evil um but i'm not sure how intentional it is or how much it's a force akin to gravity as a matter of fact now that i say that Hell, I don't know how intentional gravity is. Maybe one day gravity will just change its mind and we'll fucking fly off the earth. But uh, yeah, I mean, great thoughts based on what he shared. And another a story that he shared in his book was the 40 days, the, the last temptations of Christ. And I had not, not really uh, heard of that or considered that. But Jesus, you know, right before the culmination of his quest... He goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and Set, now going by the name Satan, tempts him with three things. And I found that right away remarkable, because Buddha, a story I'm more familiar with, right before the culmination of his quest, where he reaches enlightenment, he also is tempted by a devil character by the name of Mara, who is the god of illusion. Once again, deception, lies. And he tempts him with three temptations. 
Is this Christ we're talking about now or Buddha? This is both of them. That's what I'm saying is strange. Ugh. Mara tempted Buddha with three temptations in the night leading up to the morning of his enlightenment. Satan tempted Christ with three temptations in the 40 days he's in the desert before his sacrifice, his crucifixion. The first temptation the devil offered him was he's out there fasting. You can imagine he's hungry. So the devil shows up and says, hey, you've got the power to turn water into wine. You could turn these rocks into bread. Why don't you just make them into bread and uh, satisfy your hunger? Now, who knows what kind of trap that was? Maybe Jesus would have broke his goddamn teeth chewing on rocks. <laughs> but the deeper point of it, Jesus says, there are more things to nourish a person than bread alone. Um, a man cannot live by bread alone. A man cannot live by bread alone. I'm after something that's more deeply nourishing, more important, more longer lasting than the bread. Right now, in my quest and what I'm after, the bread would be a distraction. I'm not after a full belly. I'm not trying to alleviate my hunger right now. I'm using my hunger as a vehicle for something greater. So that was the first temptation. The second temptation Satan offered Jesus was he was near a cliff and he said, Jesus was beginning to have doubts. Why am I out here? Why does God not talk to me more? Why? What? Am I wrong? He was having self-doubt, one of the temptations of the Buddha, by the way. So Satan says, why don't you jump off that cliff? If you are truly the one son of God, surely God will save you. And won't that release you from this burden of doubt? Aren't you kind of out here like, you know, staring at the ground, staring at your toes, staring at the quiet sky? Nobody's talking. You feel all alone. Where's this God? Where's God? Get him to prove himself to you. Doesn't he owe you that? For God's sakes, look at what you've been through. Look at what you're going through. Jump off that cliff. Make God do a little bit of work. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, I, God is not here to prove himself, you know, let's leave the pronouns alone for a minute, itself, whatever, herself, to me. I am here to prove myself to God. I already look around and God is here. God is everywhere. What did I do to earn this sky? What did I do to earn the food I was eating my whole life? What did I do to earn this ground I'm walking on? What did I do to earn this body that allows me to be here? What did I do to earn this breath? What does God have to prove to me? I am here to prove myself to God. So I'm not here to make a carnival show out of God. So he uh, turns away from that temptation. And the last temptation to Christ is Satan opens up a portal to a kingdom. And he says, here, if you step through, you can be the king of all kings, the king of the earth. All these things you wish people would do, take care of the poor, throw the moneylenders out of the, the church... You can make them do it. You will have armies at your disposal. You can make everyone do exactly what you know they should do. Aren't you the one son of God? Haven't you been preaching about what people should do? What would make a life better? Now I can give you the way to have the power to accomplish it. And Jesus, again, this is me. Like, you know, read the Bible, interpret it yourself. This is my interpretation. And this is part of what I'm really like juiced up about right now is like, what these platforms are leading me to consider. My, uh, like I mentioned in the last episode, the voice of God could come through, you know, whatever. If it, if, it, if it moves you, there's something to it. So Jesus turned away from it. And I believe why he turned away, in my interpretation, is the strongest thing people have is choice. That is the strongest thing. If I make them do it, nothing has happened. 
nobody has grown. Nothing really has changed. As a matter of fact, by forcing things, I've stagnated people. Now, they don't have to make a choice. They just wait to see what to be told to do. I want to offer gently these teachings for them to choose to take or not, because only by choosing it will they really be able to be have it touch them, to be changed by that, by the, these teachings. And so he turns away the, the chance to have ultimate power, ultimate, you know, rule. And very soon after coming back, um, he's crucified on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. And let's remember this scene. He's surrounded by people who are saying, outlaw, you know, uh, wrong thinker, uh, <laughs> domestic terrorist. Oh, boy. You know, they hate him. He's not surrounded by followers, by good Christians who are like, oh, bless you for your sacrifice, you true son of God. Liar! They're yelling at him. They hate him. To the point where I believe, like, you know, he's, I mean, he's suffering quite a bit on that cross. I was about to say something I'm not sure of, so I'm going to leave that alone. I don't want to misquote the Bible if I haven't already. Um, but yeah, just these thoughts, you know, like a couple of thoughts I got from the book that were shared by Jordan Peterson that have really got me thinking. And these ancient stories, I think they hold so much. I'm getting more and more interested in delving into ancient stories of all kinds of traditions. And another thing we did this week is watched Waking Life again. So, Teresa, what do you think of Waking Life? Oh, it's um, it's a really interesting uh, it's almost like a movie about philosophy, which sounds just painfully boring. At times it is. At, and it, sometimes it is. And sometimes, well, just like a lot of philosophy, if I listen to somebody or read it, it's like, uh-oh, I'm getting lost. But it's animated, which is cool. It's like rotoscope or something. It's some weird type of animation that's made from actual filming of people. Um, so it's visually interesting and the, there's like different little vignettes of, um, this young man, like kind of going through what's like a Wiley Wiggins, Wiley Wiggins from, from what was that movie he was in? Oh, I think it was dazed and confused. Yeah. And, uh, the same director. Yeah. And he is, um, encountering different people. That's kind of like, he can't wake up from this dream. Like he just keeps encountering people that are like sharing their philosophies of life with him. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's just, it's a really, uh, unique film that I guess that's what I have to say about it. Well, I, I wrote down a couple of scenes that I, I really like stayed with me. One was, and I don't even remember what person shared this, but they said something about a story of a guy that got hit by a car. And they said right before he got, as he was getting hit by the car, um, he survived and remembered that as this event was happening, the thought that went through his head was finally something is happening. <laughs> and I don't know. I just found that so profound. You know, I've, I've, I've had that feeling before where something is happening. I've had those moments where I'm like, this is it. I'm not walking away from this one. And I've had that feeling like at the same time, there's this kind of surreal panic, maybe some fear, but I, the fear hasn't set in yet. I feel like fear often sets in in retrospect. In the immediacy of that moment, I've had that kind of like divine feeling of like, this is important. This is good. Mm -hmm. Something important is happening right now. I remember one time I was driving down the road and a big truck was coming in my lane and he didn't see me and his tire hit my car and sent it spinning and spinning down the road. I thought it was going to flip. I, it was one of those moments. I'm like, this is it. I ain't walking away from this one. 
And it was that same feeling of like, this is important. Wow. And this was a time when my social anxiety was extremely bad. I would, I would get anxiety from doing just normal stuff, like going in a grocery store, sitting at a stoplight, whatever. But I was extremely calm when this was happening. I even got out afterwards, and that calmness stayed with me long enough to talk to the driver who was really upset, <laughs> who had pulled over and like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't see you. That's never happened to me before. But that feeling of like, wow, something like a crack. You know, that there's that saying about like wounds or cracks where the divine light comes in. It's kind of what it felt like. Like there was a crack in my life. I didn't know if it was going to be the one that did me in, but divine light came pouring in. Something important and sacred was happening. So that just really moved me in the, the movie. And the other thing was that last thing, that scene he runs into with the guy at the pinball machine. Yeah, who was actually, I think, the director, um, Richard Linkletter or something. Yeah. And he's got this great thing he talks about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my, jo- my, my best to try not to butcher it too much, but... He's talking about how Philip K. Dick wrote a book, and I don't remember which book. I don't even know if he, he mentioned it. Um, but there's these characters, and he writes this book. He puts it out, and then a few years later, he runs into these people that have the same name, the same jobs. They are the characters in the book. And so he's thinking, what are the odds? What is going on here? And then he uh, talks to a preacher, I believe, and the preacher, he's telling him the story, and the preacher says, oh, that's the... Like the Book of Acts. The or... Book of Acts, A-C-T-S. Mm-hmm. And so Philip K. Dick gets his theory that, like, what if we're actually all in the time period of the Book of Acts? That actually we're all right then, like, I don't know how many thousands of years ago that is, way back in history, and that everything that seems to have happened since then is an illusion created by a demon who is distracting us, that all life is, is an invitation from God to come home. And we keep saying, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. And what that looks like in our perception of saying no thanks is time. And it's all an illusion created by this demon to keep us distracted because we think things are happening. We want to see what happens next. We're involved in things. Important things are happening. They need to be done. (laughs) Until finally, the end of every road is when that no thanks finally gets so exhausted that it says, yes, I accept the invitation to come home. And then he goes on in this vignette where uh, the guy says, and then I had this dream where Lady Gregory, um, and he talks about having this dream where Lady Gregory was in the land of the dead. And she points out, actually, it is not that time. It is not the time you think it is either. There's only now. There's no time. It's just one unfolding moment. And that was kind of the last thought before Wiley Wiggins in the last scene floats off into the sky. Presumably dead, but who even knows if that is really relevant or if we've transcended the whole paradigm of death and life and time and sleep and waking and dreams. Um, But just a beautiful, deep movie told in a way that I've never run into a movie like that before. If you haven't seen Waking Life... Um, definitely check it out. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other movie that we rented from the library at the same time was Gandhi. Mm -hmm. From Gandhi. Gandhi from like 1982. What are your uh, thoughts on Gandhi? Well, 
I we were actually going to do an episode on Gandhi. So Teresa's yeah. done quite a bit of research before we just got tired of doing whole episodes on one topic. <laughs> when I was researching Gandhi, I went to my favorite CIA source, Wikipedia. <laughs> and Gumby and I, I must called you Gandhi. Gumby and I yeah, right. took we took turns reading this boring, like really horrifically boring biography about Gandhi's life. And it just kept going on and on. I don't even think we finished reading it. I was like, I can't do this. This has actually demoralized me about everything that Gandhi may have uh, inspired me in, in, in any way. So I was like, this is shit. I think actually... The Wikipedia article may have been created by people that didn't want you to find any inspiration in Gandhi's life. And then when I went with my mom to go see family in Ohio, I um, I rented the movie. And at first I thought I found it free on YouTube, but it was only in like Hindi or something. <sighs> so you can find it free, but there's no... Um, there's no subtitles. Uh, but I rented it and I almost got done watching it and I was like writing stuff down and I was like, oh my God, I think we actually may have read about this stuff in the Wikipedia article, but it was so dry and so boring that it it was required that a film was made because otherwise it's just like, uh, I don't get it. What's so good about this? But just the, um, the overall message of Gandhi, the non-violent, non-cooperation and how that actually worked. And I'm not saying it, it solved everything, but it was like, wow, I kind of feel like, I mean, not in the way of Gandhi, but we do some of that in our life. I mean, in our own little way, in our own little way. Yeah, it was, I mean, Gandhi has inspired the hell out of me. I read his, uh, essays a long time ago, got curious about him, and he is a remarkable person. Again, I don't agree with everything about Gandhi. I don't agree with everything about anybody. Um, and I think that's appropriate. It shows that I'm thinking, and it shows that I'm, I'm finding my own way. But there's so much that I admire and have and can benefit from a man like Gandhi. I love that he has such optimism in the human spirit that he says, if we don't delve into their level, if we don't let them drag us down into the barbarism of savagery and bloodshed and abuse, if we can maintain that discipline and that courage and keep reflecting their own actions back to them, sooner or later, they're going to have to see, because they are also children of God, uh, human beings, that they are the ones acting like savages. Instead mm -hmm. of letting them drag us down, we can pull them up. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. And Gandhi, who, by the way, inspired Martin Luther King, and actually, didn't you say, actually wrote back and forth to some civil rights? Yeah, I, I don't know all the people, but it was, um, it was, I guess, known that he had interacted like through letters with W.E.B. Du Bois. I know it, it sounds like it's supposed to be Du Bois, but it's Du Bois, and um, and possibly, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't remember others' names, but let's just leave it at that. Well, I know Martin Luther King definitely... Uh, was inspired by Gandhi. Yeah, directly inspired by Gandhi, based a lot of his strategies of the civil rights movement on Gandhi's tactics. Um, and one of the uh, actions of the wokest movement, mm -hmm. who, like I said, defies logic, 
who claims to be all about things like critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, uh, equality, you know, really grabs the civil rights movement as something of theirs, um, and King, they are now tipping over statues of Gandhi and calling him a racist. Now, there are some things, you know, when you really delve into what's behind that, some letters he wrote, some things in his past that, uh, you know, if you want to make an argument, I suppose, but even some, you know, we found like black people speaking up saying, what the fuck are you doing? Like, yeah. this is Gandhi. Yeah. Like, I mean, people grow, people change. Yeah. You're going to tell me you can't find most black people like a time in their life when they're like talking shit about another race of people. We all have things in our past. That's what it means to have a human life. We're not born perfect. There'd be no point in being here. Yeah. We grow, we change. Gandhi, likewise, was not a divine, even Christ fucking had a journey. Gandhi wasn't Christ. He was a man that did extraordinary things. And if he had some thoughts that by today's standards, or even back then, their standards were... Uh, his own standards, but they changed throughout his life. Yeah. So as we're, you know, tipping over statues and uh, trying to change history... Now, even Gandhi, I mean, it's it's like a stereotype, you know, if you want to talk about some peaceful, like, oh, he would even piss up, piss off Gandhi. Well, you know, he's like the embodiment of peace. And now he's a racist. Remember when Martin Luther King, there was the whole big stink about like, oh, wasn't he like sleeping with multiple women, like having affairs? Oh, I'm waiting for them to get around. As soon as they're done with like anything they can squeeze out of Martin Luther King for their purposes, then they'll get around to him being a... Uh, Shit, I can't think of the word. Everything's got a catchy word in that camp. But, uh, yeah, basically somebody who is a sex offender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, oh, fucking wokeism, man. I hate it. So Yeah, it's, it's really, it's interesting that they're tearing Gandhi down. I mean, literally like a statue in Ghana in like West Africa. Um, but also that people are jumping on board with just this kind of a, like a sound bite, you know, like, well, you know, he was racist. Well, you know, he's like slept with young girls or whatever. He surrounded himself with naked women. Like, ooh, he's such a pervert. Um, you know, I'm not saying that sleeping with young girls or surrounding yourself with naked women when you're, you know, supposed to be, uh, practicing celibacy or whatever is, good but i'm also saying <laughs> you don't know i'm saying i don't think anybody knows um what was really going on in his life um you think you know but you only know one side of it and i think we're too complex of creatures to just flatten us into something that's like black or white just like and stick us in a box choice like do you want to do you choose to find reasons to tear everybody down or do you choose to find things they can teach you? Yeah. Like, one of the, we, are we lifting people up or are we tearing them down? That's Gandhi's whole message, really. Yeah. And one of the commenters in this article I was reading, because it was like, you know, nine facts that you didn't know about Gandhi that are like startling and revealing of his, you know, whatever, sexual perversions and his racism. And somebody wrote in the comments like, one of the most beautiful parts, and this was in like um, the Black Atlantic Star, which I think is some sort of like online newspaper for Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm assuming by the name, I'm making a big assumption here that it might be a newspaper or some sort of online magazine that's catering towards the 
black population of Atlanta. I could be totally wrong on that. But um, one of the commenters was like, you know, one of the most beautiful parts of Gandhi's life was how he unfolded and how he became more, if you want to use the word enlightened, but how he understood more and more throughout his life. It's not like he was just born perfect. That's boring. Aren't they doing that now to uh, like superheroes? Aren't they just like, there's no, there's no buildup. There's no lessons learned. It's just like, nope, they're always strong and they're always doing, you know, what's right to maintain the status quo and nothing was ever discovered about them that was controversial and, and they're just doing good. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing that? Why do you think? I mean, I, I feel like it's like we were talking about tearing down people who may be inspiring, um, putting labels onto people when they've defied so many labels and then you try to slap other labels on them. It's, it's, um, it's very, I don't know. It's suspect. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah. I, uh, there's been one, uh, what was, I was thinking of, uh, something about Gandhi. Um, oh, one of the things we were kind of watching, like the, the making of the movie, like some of the extra features. And one of the things I thought was really cool was the movie was made by an Englishman, Richard Attenborough, mm-hmm. who is his brother's David Attenborough. I have no idea. Well, he's the, the Attenborough that's known for like planet Earth, you know, like the nature guy, his brother. And um, oh, right there was a big protest against this guy because, you know, Gandhi fought the English Empire. The Empire finally left, and now they're getting this Englishman to do the story about Gandhi. And this guy, by the way, was approached by someone who's just like kind of a weird little dude that's like, hey, you need to read this book. Hey, you need to do this movie. And the guy's like, well, how do I, where am I, is the money going to come from? He's like, hey, you need to make this money to do this movie. <laughs> it's like, it was like a divine intervention almost. But as I thought about it, it's so perfect that an Englishman did the movie. It's so Gandhi-esque because <laughs> towards the end of Gandhi's life, when the Hindus and the Muslims were really at each other's throats, one of the way Gandhi's, Gandhi wanted to like make peace, but it was kind of too late because he was going to piss somebody off at this point, was he, who leaned more towards Hinduism, wanted to give all the power to the Muslims. As a show of like, we are brothers in this. I have faith in you. I see your humanity. It's the same strategy he used with the British. I have such faith in you. I'm going to put myself in your hands because I know you're going to take care of me. I'm going to lift you up. And, um, you know, they couldn't go along with that because the Hindus were already scared that Gandhi was going to do something like that. So either way, it was going to provoke just a lot of turmoil. But it would have been perfect. I think if Gandhi was alive, he would have chosen, and maybe <laughs> through whatever intervention chain of events he did choose, that an Englishman tells his story. Because he t- he said one of my one of my favorite lines in that was, "When the English leave, I want us to part as friends. We've been through so much together." And Martin Luther King carried on that same message. You know, there's so much about tear the white man down. The white man's done so much bad. Now it's his turn to feel the pain. That wasn't Martin Luther King's message. Martin Luther King was like, they're suffering just like we're suffering. We need to be better. We don't need to beat them. We need to help them heal. They don't want this any more than we do. They're trapped in it. We need to just be there to let them see the wrong they are doing, to go to that lunch counter, to to 
suffer their abuses until they see what they're doing, because they will see it, because we were all children of God, and they will see that light. And again, don't get bogged down in God if that's a trigger word for you. We are all human beings. We're something potentially good. It's in all of us. And that's so bereft, missing from the woke movement right now, and was beautifully present in Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And my other quote that I want to share from uh, Gandhi right now, there's so much to be said for Gandhi, but Mm -hmm. it's not an episode completely about Gandhi. Um, I've been inspired lately, particularly by this one. Gandhi said, if you are left with only one piece of homespun, wear it with dignity. He said this to a speech to the Indian people when he's telling them to break free from British rule. We need to not need the British. And so there's this beautiful scene in the movie right after he delivers these words I just said, where it shows Gandhi in his typical pose with his legs out to the side, uh, resting, you know, in a very non-formal way in his homespun in front of this raging bonfire that's all the English clothes. (laughs) All the people brought their English suits and threw it on the fire. And even if they barely know how to make their own clothes, there's more dignity in that than wearing the clothes that the English are selling them that are actually keeping them oppressed. And that has inspired me so much. Uh, I've, I've carried that, that, that thought, that saying with me for these last few weeks and been trying to wear my wadaji, these shoes I make, wear my hat, uh, try to learn more about making my own things. And even if they make me look silly or look raggedy, there's more dignity in them because what they really are is freedom. And that fancy little suit that's on the commercial that you think makes you look like a model those are chains. Those are those, that. That's what a baby wears, an infant that doesn't know how to take care of itself. You had to buy that from somebody, and too often from exploited people, just so you can have that fragile little self-image. Damn right. Gonna be sitting here in a loincloth right now. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. It's not a loincloth. Hey, you know, I um, I'm probably gonna. And that ain't no elephant trunk, honey. Ooh. I'm probably going to mess this up, but something that uh, I was reading about with Gandhi was, um, of course, he was casteist as well. He was, um, you know, he was from a a family that was higher than the untouchables. And yet, um, especially like in the movie, you see Gumby, Gumby, God damn it, Gandhi. <laughs> I know. We're both bald it's, and wise. Yeah, it's, 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 it's uncanny. Um You see Gandhi at his ashram, and everyone at the ashram has to take care of the latrines, has to take care of shit. Even his wife, who puts up a bit of a protest, like, you're going to make your own wife rake and clean the latrines? And there's all these articles that are like, you know, academic thinky talk about, oh, you know, Gandhi shouldn't have done that because he's taking away like the rights and, and the, the place of the untouchables. Like that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what? The message was take care of your own shit. And I used to clean toilets and, and I, we're all in it together. We're equal. Yeah. And, and his wife also very quickly came around to that message and she'd be the first person to defend what Gandhi taught her. Yeah. And I really think it's powerful. Like I cleaned toilets when I was going to college and after I graduated and I had a big chip on my shoulder, like, look at the college graduate, you know, wiping people's shit off the back wall, the bathroom stall. But there were also times when I was cleaning the bathrooms, and this was in a grocery store, like public bathrooms, that I actually felt 
really at peace. And I used to clean people's houses, and I even voluntarily cleaned up after uh, my dance teacher's mom, who would, like, unfortunately miss the toilet a lot, and, like, there was a lot of gross stuff going on there. But it was, it wasn't so much that I was, like, doing penance. It was, like, I don't know. It felt, it felt right in a way. And unfortunately, not everyone else was doing it, but I learned so much from that. And I'm not just talking about how to clean a bathroom. It was, it was a spiritual awakening for me to clean up other people's mess. Now, I had a similar experience. The last time uh, I had a job where I had to clean toilets, I think might have been at a state park, although I've had several jobs that involved cleaning toilets. Um, and at the time that I was doing it, I was reading books of Zen about there is no job more important than another job. Like a wise man, you know, like washes the dishes just as much as he goes to a retreat, you know, like every job is important and they would treat, they would uh, leave the job of cleaning the toilets to the highest status in mm. the temple, the high priest, because they recognize that the like superficially more demeaning the job, the better of an opportunity it is to work on yourself and your ego. It's a rewarding practice. And so I was lucky enough to have that in my head last time I had to clean toilets. And I had the similar experience of like, I get it. Yeah. yeah I'm not resenting this at all. Like, man, this, this needs to be done. And I, uh, yeah, I was just at peace with it. It was, yeah. it was peaceful. Yeah. So take that wokeness peoples. And skills this week, I'm trying to keep up with the skills I'm working on because, like I said, one of the moves we're trying to make is to push ourselves more into skills for independence. I'll say as kind of a record for myself, you know, if anybody cares to benefit from it, then I'm glad. But I listen to my podcast back through and it kind of like <laughs> they're like my little journal entries so I can keep up with what I'm doing and what I thought and everything. So for this week, I began to learn knitting. Knitting is something I've tried to learn at least two other times before. This is my third try, and I'm determined to push through that wall until I actually make something. Um, haven't done as much knitting as I planned on doing, but I got a good start. I've learned some stuff. And another skill that I did this week was making a new periwadaji. I made a periwadaji that were the best periwadaji I've ever made. They were maybe the third pair I've ever made, and they were made completely out of horse baling twine, um, which are soft and comfortable. Um, I reverse-wrapped the weavers to make the bottom of the wadaji and then braided the straps to go around my ankles and they wore out after about a month. So my new pair of wadaji is landscaping twine, which is plastic. I've got both blue and orange, so they're colorful. As the part that touches the ground, the weavers, and once again using the horse bailing twine around my ankles. And uh, yeah, still troubleshooting. I see things that I would do different next time. So this is my fourth pair of wadaji maybe. And uh, that's the way it goes. Just keep doing it and take pride in what you've done while acknowledging it's not perfect. And that, if you have the right mindset, can be exciting because you, you can look forward to the next ones you make because they're going to be even better. You've learned something. So those are the skills that I, I can think of that I've moved forward for the week. Mm -hmm. uh, and jump in there anytime. I'm going to keep moving unless you – I'm just no, going to go assume. Ahead. Go ahead. So um, – and one thing I wanted to share with the lessons of homemade shoes, I was uh, – Writing with one of our listeners um, who messages me every now and then, Soraya Rose up there in Canada with her new baby and her uh, partner, Cross Fox, um, leading a very rugged, interesting, free life. Um, and one of the things she said was, like, she's really pushing with some skills. And she was mentioning, like, this can be a very hard life. 
And it got me reflecting about the shoes. I think I was making my last pair of shoes at the time. And it was like, yeah, these take time to make. They even take time to put on. I can't just slip them on like a pair of flip-flops. i got to tie them around my ankle and everything. But I realized that they have more to share than practicality, than just the practicality of, of protecting my feet. And so I was thinking about some of the lessons of homemade shoes. Um, it takes time to make them, which it slows us down. And when we slow down, I mean, we're passing through this life at breakneck speed. It can feel so long and so short at the same time. But the more we slow down, the more we actually live it. We're not just journeying like we're getting to somewhere. There's no place to get but to the end of it. Here is the destination. So to slow down and be here. I love how these skills often encourage me to slow down, to sit somewhere, to just do something that stops me. Hmm. Um and it also encourages forethought, mindfulness, and the experience of the event. Like I said, you know, the Zen master, washing toilets is the same as like washing dishes, is the same as like pleading in court. There's no job that's more important than the other. You, in, you imbue it with the importance. So the experience of making a shoe, the experience of wearing a shoe, Oh, that just reminded me as an aside of uh, breathing life into the words, like through the vowels in yeah. Hebrew. And the mindfulness, you know, since I have to take the time to tie the shoe on, like if I have to use the bathroom, you might have an emergency like, man, I got to pee right now and slip on a <laughs> pair of flip flops. But I'm encouraged more to have forethought to kind of before it gets to be an emergency to recognize like, oh, I'm going to have to pee. It's going to take a little bit of time to tie these shoes on, so let me tie the shoe on. This encourages mindfulness. This encourages more presence. This encourages, like, being in touch with my bladder before it's an emergency. Attention. Noticing the quieter voice before it's screaming at me. Attention. 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 Mm -hmm. um, and it's even an invitation to make kind of a sacred ritual out of it. Now I'm putting on shoes. And because they do wear out faster, they are harder to put on and take more time, it encourages me to be barefoot more when I can. Because instead of taking the time to put on my shoe, why not be barefoot? Do I need the shoe? So it kind of helps me break out of the habit of just like, oh, putting on the shoe, putting on the shoe. It's easy, putting on the shoe. It's like, no, actually putting on the shoe is an event now. Do I need the shoe? Is it worth taking the time to tie it on? Or might I not be better just barefoot? Oh, it circles back to that Osiris story you were telling about too. How? Like to not forget the reason, like the, ah, yes. the tradition and the ritual and the ceremony. Yeah. And also, when you do wear the shoe, to walk gently. Mm. If I walk the way I usually walk, which isn't as heavy as some people, but uh, it's definitely not a gentle fox walk like I was taught in uh, survival classes. But to preserve this shoe, the shoe wears out. And like I said, you know, sometimes as fast as a month. But if I walk gently, it lasts longer. And don't I want to walk gently anyway? So can I use that shoe as a reminder and a tool to remind me, like, walk gently, walk gently. Your ancestors are buried here. Walk gently. And finally, I like the way it affects other people. <laughs> I can try to sit people down in front of me all day long and teach them what I think are the right things. But at the end of the day, the final analysis, I really don't know what the right things are. I don't know. I think I do sometimes, but really I don't. What I think are the right things change. And people, you know, they're not often ready to receive things when you want them to receive them. So I'm kind of disenchanted with classes. I'll still like 
teach a class now and then, but mainly it's to make money, and I hope somebody can benefit from it, but I don't have high hopes like I used to for that format. But if I just do something, role model it, wear those shoes, I see people notice those shoes, Mm -hmm. and I'm planting seeds without trying just by wearing a pair of shoes. If I just wear a pair of shoes like everybody else, I'm just part of the wallpaper, part of the background. I change nothing. If I wear shoes I made, people notice that. And it affects them. Now, what those seeds grow to be, that's not my business. I have no control over that. But suffice it to say, I'm planting seeds by seeking my own independence without any effort to change the world at all. So those are some of the lessons I thought about making my own shoes. And I imagine that applies so much to so many other things. Go Gandhi. I mean, Gumby. (laughs) That is what I think about my shoes. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Um. A couple other lessons, you know, uh, you know, since you're calling me Gandhi, I'm going to like just roll with it. Oh, boy. So this is something I've been thinking about this week with these skills. You know, Teresa and I are both not people who like take on a skill and it just comes easy. Some people pick up a skill and it's like, bam, like they just roll with it. <laughs> Neither one of us are those type of people. We're, we're going to have to meet with a lot of failure before we get proficient at something, much less good at it. So something that was actually in the Jordan Peterson book, but it's like one of those things that's like so uh, obvious that it's kind of like you roll your eyes. You could find it on a gift card in any drugstore. (laughs) And yet it's so obvious that we often forget it is don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Like Teresa would kind of get discouraged when she was uh, practicing the crochet. And I try to remind her of that, you know, like it's not if you can crochet as good as this other person who's crocheting a sweater. It's, did you learn at least one thing today? And even if you can't point out something you learned, did you get a little more practice Mm -hmm. with something that you've already learned? Compare yourself to yourself. It's the only thing that matters. You can't make sense of a comparison with another person. That's a whole different story. It's, 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 It's a lie. You can't compare yourself to somebody else. Um, it's like, you know, the old comparing apples to oranges. Um, and finally, another thing was time management. And I guess that's the last thing I got on my list. But <laughs> Going into the... Uh, yeah, over the two-hour mark. Yeah. But... Irony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So time management, um, it's such an important part in van life, in survival, in uh, all the things we do. And one thing that uh, I was reminded of is separating passive work from active work and coordinating them. So often we'll get to the end of our day and just through like... Doing little chores, washing our clothes, washing our bodies, washing the dishes, walking the dog, feeding the dog, shaking out the bedding. These little things add up. And by the end of the day, it's like, man, I didn't feel like I even had time to practice knitting or crochet. So you got to manage your time. It is hugely important, time management, in uh, dropping out of society, escaping society. Passive work are things that they're going to take time, but you don't need to do anything. For instance, plugging in a device to charge. You get to a park, there's plugs there. You got devices that are, uh, what? I'm just thinking about shit getting stolen, but yes, go on. Well, paying attention. (laughs) That's also important. But plugging in your devices, letting them charge while you do something else within sight of the devices while you're paying attention. Don't close your eyes for meditation if you're... (laughs) Drying clothes. So, for instance, you know, I go and I wash my clothes earlier, then they're drying in the sun. That doesn't require my work that's passive work getting done while i can do other work like filling up our water bottles so 
there's a big balance there of like the passive, the dance between the passive and the active work that I found really important. And if you're doing this with somebody else like we are, mm-hmm. I would add communication is really important. Teresa and I struggle with this all the time. We have such different ways of talking and listening to each other that uh, even after these years, our communication is still often just uh, terrible. We're like frustrated, like, how the hell did you not get that? Like we, I, I said it. You know, we have those kind of like exasperated exchanges a lot, but it's important. You got to work on that communication. And likewise with communication, delegation. If you are choosing to take on jobs and you're happy with that, run with it. Don't resent the other person for doing what they think is best at the time, which might be sitting and reading a book. If you need help, delegate. Understand what you're doing enough to say, would you mind doing this? Will I do that? And then the other person, if you have good communication, will either say, sure, or, well, actually, I'm doing this right now. Can I, uh, can we maybe do this? Can I get around? Can I help you in this way? So those are just some thoughts I had this week that I think are really important for this kind of life. And uh, I'd say any kind of life, especially dropping out of society, but probably for anybody in any like walk of life, you know, managing a house or whatever. And I just wanted to add to the uh, delegation because I realized, um, much to my dismay, I am kind of not great at this whole delegation thing. Gumby even asked me, like, have you ever had to work with somebody where you had to delegate? And I was like, no. No, because if I did, I figured I could not trust them to do what I wanted them to do. So I just did it myself anyway, even if I could delegate. Um, but what I realized, what I've learned from this experience is it takes practice. And this is uh, just an example of what I mean by that. So I'll often be the one that makes the meals. And if I have made a meal several times, like something you know simple like rice and beans, maybe we add some sausage or some vegetables or something to it. And I recognize that Gumby can help cut stuff up. That's perfect. Now, if I'm doing a meal where I've never done it before and I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants, that's a little harder to delegate. But I know the reason why it's harder. It's not because I'm inept that I'll never be able to delegate. It's just that I need practice. I need to understand like, okay, this is kind of a new situation. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing, but if I come up to a, uh, if I come up to a place in this situation where let's just say for the cooking example, something needs to be cut or something needs to be stirred while I do something, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, I can delegate that. But it does take practice. So don't get discouraged if you suck at it because I realized it seems like, yeah, you know, roll your eyes, duh. But it's, it is something that if you don't know what you're doing, it's hard to delegate. If you have some familiarity with what you're doing, it's easier to delegate because then I can say with certainty, Gumby, Gumbity, Gandhi, whatever your name is, person, Gumby G, Gumby G, I need you to, you know, chop these things up. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. All right. Well, I think I'm done. Let me look at my list. Let's see. Hated on the trannies. Check. (laughs) Hated on the Democrats. Check. Hated on Nixon. Check. Oh, um, hated on the pooping lady. Check. Aww. And yeah. Oh, no, now I got a little more hate for the uh, Democrats. One more thing really quick is, uh, you know, the Democrats are, are talking about the anti-vaxxers and really painting them out like all Trumpsters and white trash, poor white people. And uh, 
you know, saying awful things about them. And then the very next like thing they share is like, oh, you know, like putting uh, black people up on a pedestal, not because they actually think black people belong on a pedestal, because it serves their political agenda. Mm. We've been running into a lot of black people lately that we've been talking to or overhearing conversations. And uh, there's a lot of of uh, resistance in the black community to the vaccines. So um, it's not just um, NBA players that do conferences. Apparently not. No. So let that unify us. I feel like most working class salt of the earth, just regular poor folks, we're for the most part not as concerned with color. I feel like that usually comes from the top tiers that are using that to try to exploit us for their own purposes. So here's something else to be united behind. Don't don't feel like if you're like some poor white person and they're putting you in that box that you're all by yourself. It's a fucking lie. Um, they're painting a picture to, you know, like I said, that's part of their agenda. Like, let's put all the things we hate and say white male, white male, white male. It's not white men. Um, we got a friend who's black who uh, works for the parks and checks trash cans and everything. And um, He's resisting the vaccine. He says he's not going to get it. Um, we heard a couple of old black men, you know, why isn't he going to get it? Because he he says he doesn't need it. He doesn't trust it. And he doesn't want to be told what to do. Damn. Right. And a couple of old black people were sitting at the park. You know, we were in a par- uh, picnic table next to him. And they were talking and they were saying, what sense does it make? Your vaccine protects me and my vaccine protects you. Why doesn't your vaccine protect you? Some people got book smarts, but they ain't got no goddamn sense. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Like a lot of people are seeing this bullshit, no matter what your skin color, your gender or gender, your sex. Please. Uh, Know the fucking difference. I'm I'm going to tie it it off there. Sick of it. I'm going to clip it off there. I'm going to like neuter it right there. That's the end. All right. Well, I have a listener write-in. This is Eric from Livingston, Texas. Hey, Eric. Um, hope you're listening. Eric says, uh, this was from our Black Magic White Science Part 1 episode. He says, science and our very civilization is very much like a kind of black magic or deal with the devil. And I thought since we were talking about Set and Satan and uh, Satan that I'd bring up this uh particular listener right in yeah. right in i think the origins of science were observation were actually after truth but uh yeah i would agree that right now they have been used by that force that you might call set the devil satan um to turn things upside down now there's censorship there's what's being called science is absolutely not science propaganda is being called science now so couldn't agree with you more um this this evil force that we're up against is definitely manifesting through science, among other things. All right. So this is uh, this is the point where I say uh, go to our website and check out our comment section, our donate button, um, YouTube channel, Facebook page. Check out our um, what the hell else do we have on there? Movie uh, suggestions, book suggestions, and other such nonsense. And that website is escapingsociety.weebly.com. And yeah, definitely want some more listener write-ins so we can um, discuss. Please talk to us. Why does nobody talk to us? I'm going to work on myself. So that's what I'm going to focus on. All right, you done? I'm done. All right, bye. Bye. 
Society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.